0: even about revival in the city, or he's about to get us, he's about to ha- uh, remove us from this country. Well, I was like, well, let's certainly pray that it's, it's the former, and that God's about to work miraculously. And in fact, we began traveling to another town just outside of Kutahia called Tavshanla. It's, it's a town of 60,000 people, no church, no known believers. We started meeting with Bible requesters there. And uh, we came back together as a church, and I said, all right, church, let's start praying. We're starting a church there. And, uh, and so things, God was just, it seemed really working. And uh, Sonia made that statement, and then it was two months later, we went to Im- the immigration office, and they told us, we're no longer giving you visas, you have 90 days to leave our country, and you can't come back. That was, that was a crushing blow. We, we didn't expect it. It blindsided us. And of course, in the moment when we're telling our brothers and sisters in the faith, brothers whom we were discipling, brothers and sisters whom we baptized, brothers and sister whom, sisters whom we were preaching and teaching the word to on a weekly basis, we had to tell them, we have to leave. It was crushing. It was the most, it was the most humbling, uh, the most puzzling, and the most, you could say, miserable experience that we've endured. Um, And so we came back even still wondering, God, what exactly are you doing? But, you know, since then, God has sent uh, two Turkish pastors to live in that city and to shepherd this church. So the church is continuing, and they're growing in their faith. But God, God, through that, worked greatly in our lives um, by humbling us and sanctifying us and molding us more into the image of Christ uh, through this experience. And then he made it very evident that um, he had other plans for us. And that was to preach the gospel in the land, the kingdom of Cambodia. If we could go to the next slide here, we can continue at the church. Um, once we came back, we began praying, investigating um, where to next. We know we want to remain overseas. We know we want to continue to preach the gospel to individuals who have not yet heard it. Most unreached of the world, we began to pray, God, where to next? Where are you leading us? And as we were um, praying, exploring, and investigating, the Lord began to redirect our attention to the country of Cambodia. Country, uh, Cambodia is a country in Southeast Asia. Um, you know, I, I like to say it's a very uh, obscure nation, most infamous for the Kumai Roads, if you've heard of that. Um, Most don't know about it, but you can see um, it borders on the previous picture. Um, On the map, you can see that it borders uh, Thailand, Laos, uh, Vietnam. Um, It's a country of great need. Um, If you would, go to the next slide. Um, Cambodia is a country of just over 16 million people. The language there is a language called uh, Kumai. If you've ever gone to a Thai restaurant, you've seen the Thai script. It looks just like the Thai... Uh, language. It's a country that is 96, perhaps up to 98% Buddhist. And it's somewhere between 1% 1 and 1.5% 1. Christian. And so it is a country. And um, further, um, it's only 25% urbanized, which means it's a country com- comprised mostly of small towns and villages. And it's estimated that there are about 14,000 villages in Cambodia. And only 12,000 of them actually have a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church in the village. Uh, or rather, only two, uh, 2,000. So it's estimated that there are roughly 12, perhaps 13,000 villages that have, have no gospel-preaching church, that have no Bible-preaching church uh, within them. So it's a country of great need. And so if you would go to the next slide. So, uh, what's, what's our game plan for, for Cambodia? Just as it was with Turkey. Uh, one, we want to learn the Kumai language so that we can, um, in the language of the Cambodian people, articulate the gospel and minister the word and make disciples, establish new churches and train pastors. So, Kumai language acquisition, um, evangelism, establish new churches, and equip Cambodians for the work of the ministry. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be um, relocating to Cambodia the first week of August. Um, so we would ask you for your prayers for that. Um, as it relates to COVID-19, they have seen an increase in numbers. However, they've not closed off the, uh, the country. Um, and in fact, they're still issuing visas. We just have to obtain them from here in the States. Um, and so we've just um, applied for um, Theodore's Passport. As soon as it comes in, we'll be sending off our passports to the embassy um, in an attempt to obtain our visas. So we would appreciate your prayers for that. But as I said, Lord willing, um, we'll be headed out the first week of August. Um, and so we, we really would appreciate your prayers for that, for God to give us wisdom, um, for him to open uh, the door for us to be able to uh, move into Cambodia. And we would ask that you would pray, uh, pray for him to begin to work Um, in the hearts of people, people whom he has equipped us to minister to, uh, the people he intends for us to minister to, and ask that you would see fit that he would work just as powerfully and miraculously in Cambodia um, as we saw him do in Kutahia, Turkey. And so some specific ways you can pray for us um, as we're going. Um, One, pray for God to grow us in wisdom as parents. uh, We want to be able to minister the gospel to Theo, not only in our words, but even in our lives, in our character, in our deeds. We not only want to declare the gospel to Theodore, we want, we want to demonstrate the power of the gospel and its power to continue to sanctify us and humble us and, and mold us into the image of Christ. And so please pray for uh, Theodore. Um, next, uh, pray for our language studies. Um, Language acquisition, no matter how skilled you are, no matter how um, effective and efficient of a, um, a plan that you have, um, it's a gr- it's just a grueling task. It- it's hard work. Um, it's 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 not for the faint of heart. And Kumai is not an easy language. Um, it's one of the harder languages uh, for English speakers. And so we would certainly appreciate your prayers for that. Um, and then lastly, um, we... We're raising. We're um, attempting to raise uh, some new support prior to going, and to start and our startup fund as well. So, if you would pray for God to uh, graciously provide um, and, and meet the needs that we have for us to be able to to go to Cambodia. Uh, this evening, I want to um, share with you a lesson on missions from the Gospel of John. Now, um, this evening is slightly different. Um, it's not a sermon, per se. Um, it's not preaching, it's teaching. Which, of course, someone once asked me, Glenn, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? To which I said, volume. That, that's it. Um, that, that's the difference, all right? So, even, even when I teach, there might be some moments where I just get to preaching. But um, it, we're going to do some teaching tonight. But I want, um, I want to... Um, So I have been, um, during our time in the States, one of the ministry opportunities, uh, one of the doors that God has opened to us during our time in the States, is that for our church and for our Christian school, I have been preparing Bible curriculum. We've been uh, taking them through the New Testament. And so um, I prepared this lesson on John, um, and it actually... was was written to be an apologetic lesson for teenagers to demonstrate scripturally that Jesus is whom Christians claim he is and that he can be believed on the basis of the authority of of scripture. Now, um, this is actually a very fitting message. The message of John, and this lesson in particular, is a very fitting message for missions. Now, you, you might ask, why? How? So I want to pose a question, and that is, from the Gospel of John, is Jesus truly the Messiah? Is Jesus truly the Messiah? Now, so you might be thinking to yourself, okay, Glenn, it's, um, it's Missions Month, and here you are asking, is Jesus the Messiah? Like What gives? Here's why I think it's important that we look to the Gospel of John to see this truth about Jesus and how it relates to missions. If we are not, con- you see, we live—it's uh, a technical term here—we live in what's called a postmodern age, postmodernism. So historically, you had this era called modernism, and then once that era ended, you had what is uh, what came to be called postmodernism. Now, of course, many. Um, say, we're now in post postmodernism. Nonetheless, we live in what's called postmodernism. And one of the features of postmodernism is that there is no truth. That truth beliefs are not absolute, they are subjective, culturally and individually. Okay, so I'll give you an example of this, and I'm sure when I say this, you'll think, ah, I've heard that. From a family member, maybe from a coworker, or maybe from some angry person on Facebook. One time, uh, I, as I was in school, I was uh, working. Um, it was a very prestigious job. I was a um, fry cook engineer at McDonald's, and I was um, I was talking with a coworker, and I was actually planning a missions trip to Africa. To which my coworker said, "Okay, why are you going there?" They already have their beliefs. They already have their religion. They don't need you going there and telling them that uh, their religion, which is just which works for them, it's good for them, it's fine for them. They don't need you going there telling them that it's wrong and, and, and imposing your religion on them. Um, to which I, um, of course, gave a response. But um, that is the result of postmodernism, this idea that there really is no objective truth. There's no objective reality. It is what you perceive it to be, um, from which has come many issues today, such as the sexual revolution. Um, It's gone so far as to say there really is no such thing as gender. It's all socially constructed and culturally constructed, and uh, ergo, we need to dispense of it. Um, We need to get rid of it, because it really is not objectively true. This is all the result of us living in what's called this postmodern age. That can come to effect us. Uh, you see many times as Christians, unwittingly, unbeknownst to us, our minds, our worldview, our hearts have been more discipled by our media and by our cartoons and by our TV shows than they have by the Word and by the church and by the preaching of the Word. And so sometimes, even if we acquiesce to the authority of Scripture and to the reality that Jesus is Savior of all, we could also still be have... have questions. Like, okay, I believe this, but maybe, maybe in another country that works for them. Or, perhaps even if you profess the name of Christ, and you acquiesce to what you hear taught every week from the Word, you might still be thinking, yeah, can we actually know this is true? How do we actually know this is real? Or how do we actually know that Jesus is who Christians say that He is? I mean, there's always these studies coming out on the historical Jesus, trying to debunk and disprove the claims of Jesus as found in scripture. So what, what does that result in? It results in us not having confidence that this gospel that we profess is the real gospel and that it's absolute truth and that God intends this gospel to be preached to all the nations and that if the nations don't hear this gospel they will be eternally separated from God in hell for eternity. We don't have bedrock confidence in who Christ is. We will not have confidence in the task of missions. Consequently, we won't have fervor and energy in urgency for the task of missions. And ultimately, we will have no involvement in it. So the task of missions and the energy and urgency with which you are involved in missions is directly tied to your belief about who Christ is. Your urgency for the task of missions is directly connected to your faith in the claims of Jesus. If you don't believe Jesus is who he claims to be as presented to us through his followers in the scriptures, you will not care about missions. You won't even have confidence in whom we are proclaiming to the nations. So I want tonight to go through the Gospel of John and ask, how do we know Jesus is the Messiah? And from that, show that the proper response to who Jesus is, is the response of the apostles. Even the apostles, throughout the course of their lives, we can see, had skepticism, had doubts, had misunderstandings about who Jesus truly was and is. But in the end, when they finally come to reckon with who he truly is, and they're gripped by it. They're captivated by it. What was their response to that? They're sent on mission. They're sent to preach the gospel to the nations. And I too hope that by us looking at the gospel of John and asking, is Jesus truly the Messiah? Which I will explain that. I will define that term in a moment. Is Jesus truly the Messiah? Is he truly whom Christians say he is? If you can come to reckon with that and believe that, the response will be just as it was for the apostles you will say, I I have to go. i got to tell the nations, because he is who he claims to be. So how do we know he is the Messiah? Um, Perhaps uh, you've heard that term often, the Messiah, um, the Christ, which is connected to the term Messiah. Perhaps you've heard that often. Perhaps you've heard it um, in songs. You've heard it in sermons. You've heard it from Bible lessons devotionals, uh, perhaps you've also uh, wondered, what exactly does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? It's really important that we get to what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, because it is precisely this title that John wants you to believe. It's actually to persuade you that this title is rightly ascribed to Jesus. Uh, that is the reason John wrote the Gospel. We see John's ultimate purpose, penultimate purpose for the Gospel of John in John 20, verse 31. If we wouldn't, yeah. Um, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Now, as a Christian... Who already believes and professes that Jesus is the Christ, you might read that and say, Yeah, John wants you to believe that, um, wants you to read this gospel and believe so that you'll have eternal life. But notice, verse 31 does not say John wrote it so that you'll believe and inherit eternal life. John wrote, he structured his gospel intentionally to demonstrate Jesus is the Christ. And the consequence of you coming to believe that is that you'll have eternal life. So his primary objective for you and for I is to read this gospel, this gospel of John, and become persuaded that Jesus is the Christ. Okay? So now when you go through the gospel of John, when you study the gospel of John, as we look at some text tonight, uh, which we'll have to go through quickly for the sake of time, um, we have to go through it almost like a detective. So if you like uh, Sherlock Holmes, or if you like uh, detective and crime novels and films, which I love, um, you know they have to come to a crime and they have this this accusation. They have this claim. They have to adjudicate it. So they have to go and they have to gather up all the evidence and say, okay, does this evidence fit the accusation? What can we deduce from this evidence? And so, like good detectives, we have to go through the Gospel of John and say, okay, John is claiming that Jesus is the Christ. Here's all the evidence that he's gathered together. Here's all the evidence that he's compiled. So, like good detectives, we have to look at the evidence and adjudicate it. Okay, is this compelling? Is Jesus truly the Christ, the Messiah? So, when we go through the Gospel of John, what are these evidences that John presents to us that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, I want to show those to you throughout this gospel. Before I do, let me just define Christ. Uh, I'll define it by um, appealing to some Old Testament text. The Christ itself, or Messiah, means literally the anointed one, God's anointed one. You see, what happens in the Old Testament, and I'm going to give you a one to two minute overview, um, which I hope will... um, Wet your appetite to go and look into this a bit more in detail yourself. In the Old Testament, we see in Genesis 1 that God makes man, Genesis 1, 26-28, he makes man in his image. And he gives man a task. Um, it's often called the cultural mandate or the dominion mandate. Adam is commissioned to be fruitful and multiply, meaning we can look to Genesis 2, 14 and 15, and we can see that God makes all the earth, and then he makes the Garden of Eden. He takes Adam, and he plants him in the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, he gives Adam this task to be fruitful, multi- to till the ground, to work and to keep it, as Genesis 2 says, and to be fruitful and multiply. So Adam is to start in Eden and, and have a bunch of, a bunch of babies. Um, I grew up, where I grew up, I was my brother, my twin brother and I, we were the only white kids, so we didn't call them babies, we called them little chitlins. And so when we were growing up, we would say, all them little chitlins, so Adam was supposed to have all these little chitlins, all these little babies, and fill the earth. And the earth was to be filled with worshipers of God, with people who know God. This was Adam's task. The world was made for God. Man was made to know God. And yet, we look to Genesis 3. And we see that Adam was not faithful in his task. He allows the serpent, Satan, to enter into the garden and corrupt the work. And Adam and Eve disobey God. They eat of the tree of which God commanded them to not eat. And they fall into sin. And from this, what we call sin, entered into the world. Which sin, at its most basic, fundamental level, is disobedience against God's law. It is idolatry. It is favoring something or someone over God and his law. And that is what man did, although we were made to know him. And they rebel against God. And from this, from this entrance of sin into the world, we fell from God. We no longer know God. We no longer relate to God as we should. Consequently, we don't relate to one another as we should. And we don't relate to creation as we should. And from this, all chaos ensued. If you um, presumably a Wednesday night, especially in the era of COVID-19. Um, if you're here for Missions Month, you are a Christian. But if you've wondered to yourself, wh- where does all this evil come from? Where does all this pain and suffering, where does COVID-19 come from? Um, how do we explain the shooting that just occurred in Atlanta? How do we explain the shooting that just occurred in Boulder, Colorado? Well, the, the fundamental answer to that is sin. Sin has wreaked havoc and chaos upon our world. That's where all of that comes from. God, in Genesis 3.15, gives a promise that he's going to send a seed from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. The rest of the Old Testament is, and at its bare bones, in its most basic elements, an exposition and just a further elaboration of that promise. God gives this promise in Genesis 3.15 that he essentially is going to undo the work of man's sin in in the garden, and the rest of the Old Testament is God revealing progressively and slowly to man how he's going to do that. And throughout the Old Testament, what we see in passages such as 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, is that God is going to send the seed not only through the line of Abraham, the children of Israel, the line of David. And from David, this Christ, this anointed one, this Messiah is going to come and he's going to be the Savior of God's people, who will save man, he will will save God's people, and not just God's people, but all the world, from their sin, from their disobedience to God. He will provide forgiveness of sins, a new and restored relationship with God, justification despite our wrongdoings. All of this will come from this Christ. We then look to the Gospel of Matthew. For John chapter 1. And we see it's very clear in, in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew very carefully connects the birth of Christ to the promise to Abraham and the promise to David to show the Christ that we've been waiting for, the anointed one, the Savior to come and save mankind from sin and restore their fellowship with God has come, and it's Jesus. John writes his whole book to show this. Throughout the book, he gives numerous ways, evidences, that if we look rightly and perceive them with faith, we can see, yeah, Jesus is truly the Messiah. He is the one that God has always intended to send. He is the one that God has planned from eternity past to send to the earth, to die on behalf of mankind, to be raised again for their justification, and to be restored into their relationship with God. So, what are these evidences? The first way we see John proving the Messiahship, the fact that Jesus is the Christ in his gospel, is number one, through the signs of Jesus. Through the signs of Jesus. Now, um, when you go throughout the Gospel of John, signs are very prominent. In fact, many have uh, dubbed the Gospel of John the Book of Signs. By signs, I'm referring to the um, Acts the works, the deeds of miracles that Christ and his apostles performed in their lifetimes and earthly ministries. Um, It's very tempting. Uh, There's a point that we have to consider when we look at the signs in the Gospel of John, and that is signs in the Bible. You see, it's very tempting for you and I to come to a book like John, especially the book of Acts, and think, Okay, Jesus did these signs, and it attested to who he is. The, the apostles performed these signs, and they attested to the validity of the gospel they were preaching. And so we, we want to see these signs and these miracles performed today. Uh, we want to see God work in this way among us today. But it's important to remember, you can look at passages such as Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verses 1-4, through four, Signs in the Bible had a very particular purpose, a purpose that does not exist today. Ergo, we don't need those signs today. Um, When you look throughout the Bible, you see in these like big moments, these like mountain peak moments throughout God's plan of salvation that he gives this new revelation, further revealing what it is that he's going to do. This happens numerous uh, occasions throughout the Old Testament god's prophesying as we see in first peter 1 10 through 12 god through the prophets is prophesying of his coming son who's going to provide salvation well what happens is when these new moments of salvation come god will empower and grant works of miracles and the miraculous to his people to validate this word is from me this revelation that this prophet is delivering is, in fact, from me. When Jesus comes on the scene and he's performing these miracles, it's intended to show God is with him, God is empowering him, and it's attesting to and validating the word that Christ is speaking. It functioned precisely the same way with the apostles. You see, the apostles are proclaiming, especially to their contemporaries, uh, their contemporary Jews. Look, the Christ has in fact come. And the gospel we're preaching is his message to the nations. But they weren't going to believe them. So God empowered them and gave these miraculous events and powers to them. And it validated, yes, this is all from God. But you see, we don't have this ongoing act of revelation from the Spirit. The Spirit has given us all the revelation we need when this Bible was fully written, when it was canonized, when it was put together, And now we have the word of the apostles, which is the final word of God to man, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have all we need. And so God doesn't continue to work in this way, which helps us um, to realize just how important then these signs in the Bible are. Their function is of utmost importance. So in John, we see seven big signs, seven major signs, which, yes, it was already put up Uh, we see seven major signs in the Gospel of John. Now, here's an important point that you might want to study on your own at some point. We read in John 20 uh, at the end, uh, 31 and following, that Jesus did other signs. These seven signs are not the only signs that Jesus performed. But John saw that these signs in particular were significant and pointed to who Christ was, and what it was that he was doing. Um, Then, what's important is that he intentionally selects seven. Now, if Jesus performs all of these miracles, why does he see fit to boil them down to seven? Uh, there's, There's significance to this number seven, and the purpose for which John selected seven. But you can see, throughout the Gospel of John, to confirm that he was, in fact, truly the Christ the one anointed by God to provide redemption to all mankind. We see in 2, 1 through 11, he turns water into wine. We see in 4, 46 through 54, he heals the official sons. Now, I will say, um, due to time, I won't read all these texts. Um, in an ideal setting, with um, uh, we would just go through all these so you could see the text for yourself. But um, you're welcome to write these down and go and, and look at these passages uh, in your personal study, we see in five, one through fifteen, he heals this invalid. Uh, six, five through thirteen, he feeds the multitude. six, sixteen through twenty one, he walks on water. nine, one through seventeen, he heals a man born blind. And then lastly, in uh, John chapter eleven, he raises Lazarus, Lazarus from the dead. Now, when you read these signs, here are some ways that you could read these. Ah, oh, if, only, if only we could see these miracles today. If only we could see God work uh, in such powerful and miraculous ways today. I mean, in D- Moses' day, he parted the Red Sea. In Jesus' day, he raised Lazarus from the dead. In the apostles' day, they just touched their, the apostles' coats and they were healed. And today, we can't even fight COVID. If only God would work miraculously and powerfully today. Well... To that, I would say, you must read these signs knowing they don't point you to the miracle itself. The miracles function as windows. You're to look to the miracle and look through them to see who Christ is. These miracles occurred and were written for you and me to show us not just how powerful um, Jesus' pyrotechnic show is. They were written to show us who Jesus is, that He is the Christ, who has come to provide salvation for you and for all mankind. So when you see these miracles, remember that. Read them um, um, as showing you who Christ is, not some pyrotechnic show that you want to see today. Now, this particular point can be difficult because we live in the age of science, right? So signs in contemporary minds. So many today will object to these signs and say, See, it's because of this that Christianity cannot be true. Perhaps you're thinking this today if you're a young person taking science classes. We could put it in the form of a syllogism. Many will say this. Science has objectively and factually disproved miracles. Miracles are false, right? Christianity believes in miracles. Therefore, Christianity can't be true. But, you know... There there are many problems with that particular view. Two of them are, it's historically aberrant. Almost no one until the 20th century even thought that way. And then two, it's culturally odd. You do realize um, a recent study came out uh, on atheism in America. Um, Because you'll read the news and media outlets and they'll tell you atheism is on the rise, Christianity is on the decline. What's interesting is when you look at the statistics, that's actually not entirely true. And if you look at the statistics of Christianity and atheism, here's another question you could ask. Who actually are behind these numbers? Who do these numbers represent? The majority of atheism in America is white males. So atheism isn't rising among any other part of the populace, only white males. In fact, you look at um, uh, uh, re- religion rates on, other univer- uh, on um, university campuses, of predominantly um, foreigners and um, people of, of various uh, colors and ethnicities, Rel- religious rates and especially Christianity is on the rise. And so it's only actually a particular group that even believes this. Um, no one else, really, in history and around the world today even believes this. Um, what we can see then is that what Scripture has presented about the miraculous works and deeds of Jesus, one, is historically verifiable. It really happened. And two, we can rest confident in this because this is God's word, and it tells us that Jesus did this. He performed these miracles to show us who he is. Now, there are uh, three other points that I want to just quickly give you for the sake of time, and um, you're welcome to study them in more detail on your own. The next way in which John presents Jesus to truly be the Messiah is through the claims of Jesus. Okay? Now, it's common. I heard it in the Muslim world. It's even common today um, among atheists um, in America. It's pretty interesting. Although it's two different belief systems, two different worldviews, the same objection presents itself. Well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. Or, did Jesus ever really claim to be the Christ? Uh, short answer, yes, in fact, he did. Um, one, of one did he answer it directly, yes? Well, yes, actually he did. Uh, you can see it in, at, at the end of his life, in his encounter with Pontius Pilate. Another way in which um, we can come to see how he, the claims he makes for himself in Scripture, is by learning to read Scripture on its own terms. You see, sometimes we come to the Bible, um, te- and we want to read texts that were written 2,000 plus years ago, and we want to read it as if it's a 21st century text, as if it reads the same way. Um, And so then we read it just as we would a text written last week and say, well, look, it doesn't say this. Ergo, Jesus never said that. To which I want to say, perhaps you should learn to read a little bit because that's not how you read text. That's not how you read literature. You have to learn to read it according to the kind of genre it is and according to the era in which it was written. It would have been very clear to Jesus' contemporaries and his readers shortly after the writing of the New Testament, wow, Jesus made some very audacious claims. Jesus did, in fact, claim to be the Christ. It's, It's seen in numerous ways throughout John. The primary way in which it's seen is through the I am statements. So you look in the Gospel of John and you see these I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Lastly, before Abraham was, I am. Why do you think Jesus' contemporaries were so outraged at the claims he made? It's because he was claiming to be the Christ and very God himself. So the claims of Jesus. If you want to know, is Jesus truly the Christ, the Savior of the world? Go to the Gospel of John and see what Jesus claims for himself. The next way in which you can see this, this claim, this identity of Jesus validated and confirmed in the Gospel of John, is through Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. John is very meticulous, very careful to show us in his gospel that Jesus came and that His coming and his work and his mission was not disconnected from or discontinuous with the Old Testament, but was a continuation and fulfillment of it. You see this in two prominent ways in the Gospel of John. The new birth, which you can see the chart, connects to Deuteronomy, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and John 3, and the outpouring of the Spirit, which was anticipated as early as Numbers 11.29. All of that, uh, just these two examples of Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, John does this for two reasons. One, to show you... This book, the Bible, it's not a disconnected, disjointed um, collection of two different testaments or two different eras, two different books. Um, They're not two contradictory messages. The Old and the New Testament are uh, seamless and organic um, and consistent. And they have the same message. In the Old Testament, God was saying the Christ is going to come. Believe him. In the New Testament, they're saying the Christ has come and he's Jesus, believe him. So it's one organic, consistent message, meaning you can't believe the Bible. If you're a young person, you're going to go to university, and you're going to be told the Bible has contradictions. Can I tell you, they have not read this Bible. This Bible is organically connected, and it's miraculous and wonderful, and when you read it, riveting to see, oh my goodness, look how connected this is, and look how consistent this is. And what connects it all is the life of Christ. And then last, how do we know that Jesus is truly the Messiah? When we look to the Gospel of John, John wants us to, to lastly look at the witnesses of Jesus. The witnesses of Jesus. So it wasn't only Jesus himself claiming to be the Christ. Jesus had witnesses in his life attesting to the reality, attesting to his identity, attesting and validating his work. This was very important because Jesus was working in um, obedience to, in subjection to the Mosaic Law, which necessitated two or more witnesses when a claim was made. In fact, in John 5, they, they, the whole argument is about the identity of Jesus and whether or not he's the Messiah. And in John 5, he, uh, he connects it to the Mosaic Law, makes it very clear, witnesses are needed to validate my claim. Let me give you some. And he provides several. John the Baptist, his own works, God the Father himself. You'll recall at the baptism of Jesus, uh, a dove descended, the Holy Spirit, the clouds were opened, and a voice that said, uh, My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Uh, That was not verbatim, just so you know. That was just off the top of my head. Even God the Father from heaven spoke and attested to the identity of confirming this is my Christ. He is the one whom I have sent to the world to die for the sins of mankind, to be raised for their justification, and to provide forgiveness of sins to all. And then lastly, John five thirty nine and 45 through 47, the Old Testament, and especially Moses, the entire Old Testament, prophesies of and points to Jesus. So here's what Jesus is saying. If you read the whole Bible, and especially the Old Testament correctly, you're going to get to me. The Old Testament is like a road map. And you're going to follow it and you're going to be like, where on earth is this map getting me? And you're going to get to Christ. And in fact, in John 5, he's saying, if you follow it like a map and you don't end up at the destination Jesus, you haven't read it properly. So the whole Old Testament is about Jesus. Jesus um, deduces all of these witnesses to show us all divine scripture. God the Father the Father's prophet, John, even the deeds I'm doing in conjunction with the Old Testament all attest to the fact that I am the Christ and I can be believed for the salvation of souls. Now, we need to end here. There's so much more we could say. I wish we could continue. But here's what all this means. You look to the Gospel of John and here's what you see. Jesus is the Christ. He is the one whom Revelation tells us was slain before the foundation of the world. He is the one whom God the Father has always intended to send to the earth, to die for sinful man, to be raised again for sinful man's justification, to be raised on the third day and to be seated at the right hand, the throne of God, and to commission his church to take his message, the gospel, to the nations and to the nations declare there's one way It's not Allah, it's not Buddha, it's the Christ, Jesus, who died for your sins in accordance with with God the Father's eternal plan. Believe him, because he died for you. Now, if you believe this, the proper response is to go on mission to your friends, to your co-workers, to your family, and to the nations. You see, A call to missions is a call to reckon with the claims of Christ. If you truly believe this is who Jesus is, there's only one proper response. Believe him and then call upon others to believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious truth of Jesus the Christ. Strengthen our faith in this and our urgency to proclaim this. In his name we pray. we stand to our feet with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. What a great overview of the life of Jesus Christ throughout the book of John.